Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking and I'm Ellie Newman And this week, I've been thinking about films And their ability to entertain, educate, amaze, and inspire My guests today are Reed Lindsay and Charlie Hardy, and we'll be talking about their recent film, Charlie and Goliath, a feature-length documentary about an ordinary man's extraordinary struggle to shake up the political establishment. Reed Lindsay is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and journalist who has traveled around the world pursuing his passion to tell stories of people's struggles against injustice and abuse of power. He lived in a poor neighborhood of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, for more than four years and worked as a foreign correspondent in Cairo and Benghazi during the Arab Spring. And Charlie Hardy, Charlie is our story's hero, likened to Don Quixote, but hopefully with better odds of success. And I was wondering, Reed, does that make you Sancho Pancho or the horse, Rosinante? Oh, well, neither. Those are the, actually, those are also characters in the film. There's a Sancho Panza and there's a, a Rosinante too, because there's a, in Charlie's campaign, there was, there's a campaign bus uh, that, uh, it's from an old school bus that, that they drove all around the state of Wyoming in. And uh, which could play that role. So two years after his bid for the U.S. Senate, Charlie ran for the office again in 2016, this time for the U.S. House of Representatives. Charlie rallied an even larger group of volunteers from his first venture, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. So welcome to both of you, and thank you so much for joining me on That Got Me Thinking. Thanks for the invitation, Ellie. So your film is showing this, this evening... Um, when did it premiere, and, and how many festivals have you guys been in so far? Well, uh, the film premiered at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival in Missoula, Montana on February 19th, and we had a, we had a great showing there, and uh, this is our second public screening here in Ketchum, which is my hometown, so I'm very excited about that. So where did you two meet? Let's start with that. Well, uh, we met, I've known Charlie for about a dozen years, maybe a little longer. Uh, I was doing a lot of reporting in Latin America, working as a freelance journalist there. And uh, Charlie was living in Caracas, Venezuela. He's from Wyoming, but he had been living as a, as a priest uh, in a cardboard shack in, in Caracas. And I met him at a journalism conference in Mexico. He had been doing a lot of writing about Venezuela, very personal writing about his what life was like there, but also reflecting on, on the politics there and what was happening politically. So um, we, uh, we met at this conference, and I was just struck by, by Charlie. He's a very unusual guy. It's not every day you meet somebody who voluntarily lives in a cardboard shack for eight years. And I just found that fascinating, and I, I really liked him. He just seemed like such an honest, sincere person. And I got to know him over the years, visiting Venezuela uh, as I would, was doing reporting there. And I, uh, I became friends with Charlie. And um, a couple years ago, he gave me a call and said he was running for the U.S. Senate in Wyoming. And I said, you're crazy, Charlie, because uh, you're not a politician. You're not cut out to be a politician. Uh, uh, you're too honest. <laughs> Um, and you're too sincere and uh, uh, but uh, but he convinced me to come out to Wyoming because he was very uh, he was talking a lot about money and politics that was an issue I was very uh, passionate about and once I got out there I was so inspired I, I decided to stay and do this documentary film 
So, Charlie, before the show started, you mentioned that your son had said that he always imagined there'd be a film about you, but not one with you in politics. So had you imagined yourself ever in politics prior to deciding that it was time and this had to happen? You know, as a young man, I always, for me, politics was a noble profession. Uh, I ended up going to, into the clergy and... Uh, and uh, what happened, I was a Catholic priest, and maybe still am, but in 1994. Did you say maybe still am? <laughs> well, because they say, We could do a show on that. Well, is, is he or isn't he? It's a good question. Uh, the, actually, I asked that question a couple of years ago, and I discovered that I was, uh, what, I, I was suspended. I, I'm not excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Well, I'm that's suspended. just their opinion, though. How about internally? And, uh, from, so, from the heart, are you still a Catholic priest I, or not? I, you know, I, I really think everyone is, uh, I, I think everyone is a priest, whether Catholic or whatever. We're all here to, to kind of be with people and try to figure out what's going on in the world. But at uh, any rate, I, I married in 1994, and so that as far as actively participating in that way. But, um, and, and I wouldn't, I don't regret any moment along the way, whether functioning as a Catholic priest or having been married, which is a great privilege. Susanna, the woman I married, wonderful person. But after six years, we discovered we had a better relationship as friends, as married couple, and so we're still good friends, and the life has gone on. It's a and, difficult uh, and mature uh, decision to make. Well, thank you for putting in those words, but it's, uh, I, I guess I just feel like I'm a very, very lucky, lucky person in that regard. The, uh, and so meeting Reed, um, I was at that time, uh, we were at a journalism school, and I was thinking about getting involved in journalism. And was this at the time you were living in the cardboard shack in a Venezuela no. slum? <laughs> I, no, it was after I had married. Uh, I went to Venezuela in 1985 and was there until 1983 in the, the press cardboard shack. If someone would want to look online, uh, they could go to YouTube and uh, put in Inside inside Story Charles Hardy. Al Jazeera did like a four-minute segment where you can see what the, the buildings look like and so on along that line. Um, so I was not, no, that was uh, 93. It was probably about 2000. Three, somewhere in there, I think, that uh, I... No, it was before that. When you and Reed met. When, but, okay, I'm going to have to think about when we met. It was a long time ago. <laughs> but, but what impressed me at that moment was I was thinking about going into journalism. And here was this uh, young man who was living in Argentina at the time. We met in Mexico. And uh, he uh, knew I was thinking about going into journalism, he gave me a list. He was writing stories that would appear in, in New York, in London, in Australia. He was writing in English from Argentina and sending stories around the world. And he gave me a list of contacts with newspapers. And I thought, I mean, this guy is crazy. It's Imagine a realtor giving another realtor a list of contacts or something like that. But, um, it tells something it, about what he, he thought of you. It's a, so generous. Well, but it says something what I thought about him. Because uh, what I've seen, for example, when he followed us on the campaign trail, he was constantly teaching young people how to use the camera. And uh, he's as much a teacher as a, a journalist. And uh, um, 
I, I, and what about journalism was appealing to you at that point? Well, the reason for that was because there was a, a coup in Venezuela in 2002. And uh, I really felt truth wasn't getting out of Latin America, what was happening. And that's what... Uh, Within I, Latin America or from Latin America into the European countries in America? From Latin America and around the world. It, and that is what motivated me to get involved with politics, too. Uh, I think our foreign policy has been a disaster around the world. We go around the world telling people, uh, you know, what, what they should do in their country. Uh, in the past few days, I'm a little bit concerned. I've heard that uh, the United States has been, is sending like 400 troops into Syria. And what runs through my mind is, what if Mexico were to send 400 troops in the United States because they're trying to get rid of some bad people in, in the United States, and uh, so they decided to send their troops in here. Uh, it, it just, uh, I'm not happy with our foreign policy, and, uh, and it, I'm not talking about a current president, past president, it's just gone on and on. And uh, so, at any rate, that's why I was interested in getting involved in journalism. As things turned out, I discovered I wasn't a journalist. I was more an editorial writer and probably wrote 300 op-eds uh, that were on website. Uh, and, and what was the distinction that you discovered in that, what, that that made you an editorial writer and not a journalist? Uh, or the qualities that either it, that you had or that, that the task required? It, it's too hard being a journalist. Uh, you know, you go someplace and so much happens and you have to put down two or three or four items. Whereas, You've got a lot more to say. Yes. Whereas with writing opinion, you're, you're free to, to really say what you want to say. And the other thing that I became aware of that I think is a struggle for journalists uh, in Venezuela, I, I know one journalist with a national, I mean, international uh, press service who finally left the country because he said it didn't matter what he wrote. Uh, at that time, President Chavez was the president of Venezuela. And he said if, if he were to dedicate one of the most modern schools in the whole world and there's one person outside protesting, that person protesting is what's going to go in. And the bureau chief, uh, I, I know another one who came one time and he said, you know, if I've ever seen a million people in a demonstration, I saw a million people today. Uh, or yesterday, and he said, but I went back to the office, and I said, over 100,000, and the um, editor said, no, Associated Press said more than 10,000. That's, that's ringing bells of, of faint um, things happening in the Women's March recently. <laughs> yeah, so, so I guess part of it was that frustration. Yeah. When you write an op-ed, you're able to say what you, you think, and, and nobody will change that. They won't hold responsible. But news articles, there's so much editing that goes into that. Uh, and even going back to high school, I remember things like uh, putting the first paragraphs, the most important things, because it, newspapers will chop the last paragraphs that they need more space. You and I had the same education. First sentence, last sentence, first paragraph, last paragraph. Okay. And, and so at any rate, um, it, any rate, how did I meet Reed? I met this person who seemed interested in in a, uh, oh, building a different world and fighting for different causes. And uh, you mentioned that he was once in Haiti. I, uh, as we got to know each other, I was urging him to go to Brazil to learn. He, he knew Spanish. I thought it would be good for him to learn Portuguese. 
And um, when I saw him, uh, he, I was in Venezuela, he came back, he had been in the United States at that moment, he said, uh, Charlie, I appreciate your advice, but uh, I think I'm going to go to Haiti. I don't think the truth is getting out of Haiti. And uh, Ellie, in all honesty, I wondered at that moment, would I ever see Reed alive again? The situation in Haiti was that tense at that moment. And uh, so what you have before you right now, in my mind, is a, um, a crazy guy. I think who, I've got two crazy guys in front of uh, me with, well, with huge levels of integrity and generosity and, and intellect. Well, in, insanity maybe. But, uh, so I want to read uh, something I, I had seen written about you. Charlie Hardy is one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. He's a 77-year-old former Catholic priest who lived in a cardboard shack in a Venezuelan slum for eight years. In 2014, Charlie returned to his hometown of Cheyenne, Wyoming, and was shocked to see homelessness, hunger, and poverty. When his attempts to contact the state-selected officials went unanswered, he decided to run for office himself. Flat broke and living off his $400 a month Social Security check, Charlie declared his candidacy for the U.S. Senate. His opponent was Senator Mike Enzi, an 18-year incumbent with a $3 million war chest. So do you remember that moment when you thought, okay, I'm going to do this? And, and, you, and, and how act, actually does one formally declare their candidacy? Um, the First of all, uh, you mentioned 75-year-old. Uh, I, I say at the present moment, I have 77 years of accumulated youth. Uh, you know, Eng- English is so strange. Someone's holding a new baby in their arms, and they say, how old is a baby? It should be, how new is a baby? How young is a baby? So if you'd like to ask, how young am I right now? I have 77 years of accumulated youth. Uh, now, having said that, what was your question? My question was how one <laughs> declares their candidacy and what was or were the, the events that drove you to determine that that was a must next step? You know, it's one of those secrets that uh, I don't think people realize. If you want to be a candidate in Wyoming for the United States Senate, all you have to do is belong to one of the major parties, Republican or Democrat, and go give $200 to Secretary of State and your name will appear on the primary ballot. Uh, This last year for the House of Representatives, I think there were nine candidates for the Republican nomination. All those people I'd do was give 200 bucks. You didn't even need to get a petition signed by a number of voters. but, But if you want to run as an independent, you have to get thousands and thousands. And that I had tried before to, to get on the ballot as an independent for the U.S. House of Representatives back in 2011, 2012. And, uh, and it was an awesome experience. That was kind of the introduction. Over 100 volunteers went on the street gathering up signatures, and we almost got enough. But uh, like I say, if, if you just say, I'm a Democrat, here's 200 bucks, put my name on the ballot. Uh, I'm worried that maybe next year there might be a hundred candidates for some of these. Well, things. there might be now throughout the the nation that if, people know know if, that's all that's required. No, but it varies from state from state to, to state. state, and so uh, it, it may be different here. And so, what was your intention or your objective at that point? Uh, to start out, it was the concern about our foreign policy. Okay, having lived in Venezuela, having lived outside the United States for years, I. I've traveled a lot. I've been between 30, 40 countries around the world. I've been interested in learning foreign languages, uh, 
um, actually studied a little bit of 11 foreign languages, but I'm not, but not to be smart. It's just to make friends. And I've discovered people who speak a foreign language perfectly and they don't relate to all and others who slaughter the language. But if you can just say even a few words in another language, you can make friends. So that was my concern. But then again, coming back to the United States, uh, uh, at the time we're recording this, mention has just been made about possibly cutting back funds to Meals on Wheels. And uh, the Secretary of... Uh, uh, whatever group is concerned about that said, you know, it's a nice name, but what good does it do? Oh, Lord, I mean, there are, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where I live, volunteers go out every day bringing food to people who will have a decent meal uh, in their home. Uh, and We, we have the same like program that. here. And uh, on Facebook yesterday, he was writing saying he couldn't believe that this was something he did every day and he couldn't believe it was being cut. And you just imagine that if that's happening in Cheyenne and in Sun Valley and Ketchum, Idaho, what it must be like in the large cities. I'm shocked with the number of people that are on the street, the people who sleep every night at a homeless shelter. Uh, I mean, this isn't, this isn't the, I, I, I pretty much left the United States in many ways in 1985. And uh, come back and say, I, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. So that became my motivation. Originally, it was because of concern about foreign policy. But when I came back to the United States and saw what was happening, I thought someone has got to start shouting about this. And, and so how much of an optimist are you? Did you enter the race thinking, all right, I can win this thing, and that's the way I, I start to really make changes as far as what's happening at home and abroad, or sure. what, what was your thought? Sure, sure. I mean, because you never know. You, you, I, 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 I was thinking, Abba, Abba has a song starts out, I have a dream, a song to sing. Uh, I think there's more... Mamma Mia is very popular in our house, so we've seen that about 12 times. I know that song well. Okay. Uh, I think there's a lot of... Uh, okay, I, I'll put in, I'll, I'll say like closet Democrats in Wyoming... But I don't really mean politically Democrats necessarily. There's in in the two 2000- thousand. Well, there's a lot of individualists, right? At first, I thought, all right, this is an interesting state for someone to to take this on, and then I thought, well, maybe not. But listen, to, uh, in, in two thousand fourteen, young people between the ages of eighteen and twenty four, they would be eligible to vote. Do you? I'll ask you, Ellie. Do you have any idea what percentage of Young people between 18 and 24 voted in the 2014 elections in Wyoming? Uh, 20%? Am I an optimist too? You're an optimist. 10% statewide. In the county where I live, about 8%. One out of 12 young people voted. Now they're struggling with uh, they're struggling with college education, they're struggling with minimum wage, they're struggling with these things, and they're not getting out to vote. And yet I think they would feel the same way that I feel about things. Uh, and and what do you think is indicative that that they don't feel a part of the system, that they don't feel it makes a difference, that they just ha- I don't have it as something that they associate with their identity? I'll take the first two things. Uh, is there any reason, is there any choice between one candidate and the other candidate? So disillusionment. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, the, nobody's offering that much 
to be hopeful about. And so w- did you notice a reaction to Bernie when his campaign really got going? Did you notice the youth of Cheyenne, any of, any of them rallying around? Yes, and that's what made the difference when I ran for the U.S. House of Representatives. But, but they got squashed. They got squashed by the, politi- by the Democratic political structure in Wyoming. Uh, there was enthusiasm. There was vibrancy there. And yet the four uh, superdelegates came out before any caucus was ever held and said they were endorsing Hillary Clinton. And they wouldn't go down on that. It didn't matter what the young people said. So this was not on my list of questions, but what do you think of the Electoral College and the system that we've got thus far? I mean, it seems that its, its result in this last election was the direct opposite of what it was designed to prevent. Um, do we need a change? I, uh, I, I would... I remember someone meeting with the Electoral uh, Commission in Venezuela, and the last question asked, these were people from the United States, and the last question then was, how is it possible that in the United States, the person who gets the most votes loses the election? And uh, and were they able to explain it? I think that's the other problem. I'm no, sure 99% of our country could not explain how the, the Electoral College works was, or why. Are you trying to change it? And the reaction was no. Um, I'd have to suspend my judgment at this moment. Coming from Wyoming, uh, we in Wyoming are politically the most powerful people in the whole United States because we're like half a million people. We have two senators. California has two senators. We have a representative. And I always said we can get in to see him. I, I mean, I met with Dick Cheney when he was U.S. representative in his office on a Saturday morning with blue jeans on. You know? What was that uh, like? Well, that was way back. That was Dick Cheney at that time, okay? That was a long time ago. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. Yes, pre, pre, during, and post, three identities. But uh, yes, we'll just leave it at that. I won't say anything more about that. But the fact was, you could, in Wyoming, get in and meet with your senators and representatives. And, uh, and uh, that's why I did get involved, was because I did try to meet with them in like 2011 or so to talk about what was going on in the world, and I couldn't get an interview with them. And I said, something has gone wrong in Wyoming. And right now in Wyoming, there's a big thrust trying to get town hall meetings. And uh, there's been resistance by our congressional delegation to that. But it, that's, I think there's a resistance to get town hall meetings across the nation. And for many representatives, for very good reason. Yeah. Not admirable, but good reason. So... At any rate, I don't remember what your question was, but I hope we answered it somewhere. I'm sure we did. I think we'll take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm speaking to Reed Lindsay and Charlie Hardy about their movie that's showing this afternoon in the Sun Valley Film Festival. And we'll be back in just a moment, so stick with us. This is Ellie Newman, host of That Got Me Thinking, a special Sun Valley Film Festival edition. All right, we're back. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, drop-in radio, listener-supported community radio, streaming at kdpifm.org 24-7. So I want to talk a little bit about your Kickstarter campaign. So read... I saw online, I was, you've got a, you're utilizing social media for the film. You've got the Kickstarter campaign to raise money. You've got a Facebook page. People can go on both of those. And I, I want to just start with uh, telling us something about the pledge gifts. I thought those were very um, original and also intriguing and, and motivated me in a pledge. 
Oh, for the for the Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, one was I think you could have breakfast with Charlie, some special breakfast he was going to make. <laughs> yeah, we had some. I don't think anyone, no one bid on the big ones, uh, uh, coming out to to Wyoming and and doing things like that. But um, which was nice because in a way it reflected Charlie's campaign, which was totally fueled by small, uh, very uh, <clears throat> modest contributions, and and the Kickstarter campaign as well was was mostly fueled by smaller contributions. And um, yeah, Charlie is, uh, he, he, he's a great letter writer. And so one of the gifts I know was, uh, was that he would write a, write a personal letter to some people who contributed. So he's got a lot of letter writing yet to do. We haven't had time really to, uh, to come through on, on some of those pledges because uh, we've been so focused on uh, finishing the film. In fact, it was just finished uh, just days before the premiere at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival. The reason for the Kickstarter was uh, to get some money for Reed to, uh, you would have to explain, a, a lot of post-production things. Uh, this Editing is, and sound and promotion, yes, this, distribution. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the film is basically funded, uh, really self-funded, uh, out of my own pocket and uh, we, and thanks to the generosity of a lot of people we had uh, my partner Jahan was out there in Wyoming helping uh, uh, without getting any kind of compensation uh, another at least not monetary compensation no no and uh, uh, Julia Moldavan uh, she is a, a aspiring young journalist and filmmaker she was out there riding around in the bus we slept in the bus we slept in tents we slept in people's homes. Uh, I don't think we were in a hotel a single night out there. And um, it was sort of, it was all self-funded. And then I funded out of my own pocket to pay an editor to help and, and, and to, until I got toward the end of the process. And then there were a lot of costs that I just couldn't, I couldn't handle on my own. That's why we did the Kickstarter campaign. So you said at its core, the film is about the power of hope, persistence, and faith in the face of overwhelming obstacles. It was also a lot about... Uh, getting money out of politics. So tell us about the film from probably each of your perspectives. Well, yeah, for me, the film has, there's two levels. I initially got into, uh, um, got in, decided to do the film because of this issue of money in politics. I just felt like it was, I spent a year in D.C. working as a, as a bureau chief for Latin American news organizations. Uh, and I, uh, so I, I got a feeling for what politics was like in D.C. And I also spent a long time reporting on U.S. foreign policy all over Latin America and different parts of the world. And so I, I had very strong feelings about how money influences our political process, elections and legislation and decisions at the highest levels. And I felt that our government basically does not represent the people. It represents corporations. And that goes for Democrats and Republicans. They're all complicit in it. I don't really see a big difference between the two in, in that regard. Um, and I think that was sort of clear in this election and how people sort of, a lot of people... That uh, your perspective is shared. That is yeah. shared by the majority of the yeah. populace. I mean, uh, there's no way that someone like Trump would have won uh, if he was running against somebody who, who people didn't perceive as being part of the system and essentially bought off. And um, so I felt very passionate about this issue, and Charlie was talking about it. And this was before Bernie uh, was running on the national level, at least. And so there just weren't a lot of U.S. Senate candidates across the country talking about money and politics and making it a central part of, of their platform. And I thought, what an exciting thing, especially in a place like Wyoming, to be talking about this issue. And one thing I discovered was that Republicans care as much about this issue issue as Democrats. And I would go out and ask questions, of speak with uh, 
ordinary Wyomingites who identified themselves as being not just conservative, but ultra conservative. And they were fired up about this issue of money and politics. And they were saying the same type of things that you might hear on the streets in, of Berkeley or San Francisco or something. So or how do you reconcile, since I have you here and you're clearly an expert, and I've been wanting to ask this question of many of my guests in the last six months, how do you reconcile Trump, who really the reason he won or was able to put on the type of campaign, not the reason he won, but the way he was able to put on the campaign, it was because he's made so much money and has so much money and, and could put so much money into his, his campaign. How do you reconcile in what sense? That people wanted to get money out of politics and yet elected Trump. Well, there's a disconnect. Uh, also in Wyoming, and this, you know, before the 2016 election, this was 2014, and I would be, I would speak with an individual who would talk about just go on. I was expecting people to bash Obama, and the Democrats and Pelosi, and they're terrible and so on. But I would, I would start with open-ended questions, and and generally it wasn't really so focused on the Democrats. They seemed to be as upset about the Republicans as the Democrats, and they would talk about systemic problems. But then at the end of the interview, I'd say, Well, who are you going to vote for? Oh, I'm going to vote for Enzi. You know, there's a disconnect there, and I think the disconnect goes back to what Charlie was saying about why young people don't vote. I don't think they see that there is an alternative. So uh, there's a part in the film where, uh, where after Charlie's had, and his volunteers had gone through in the middle of a small town in Wyoming in a parade uh, in their bus, which is sort of hard to miss, and I went down to the parade grounds and started asking people about Charlie Hardy. Uh, not what do you think of him, but do you know him? Have you ever heard of him? And nine out of 10 had never heard of him. So maybe the problem is the two-party system rather than the electoral college. Maybe that's what we need to focus on changing. Well, I think, yeah, I think, I think the two-party system is a problem. But I think at the root of that is this, is this question of money and politics. Now, there, are, there actually were third-party candidates um, in, the, in the presidential election. There were, well, on the national level, a couple. And, um, but I don't think they were seen as viable. I don't think they got, they got almost no media coverage. And that is the norm. And, and I think that has to come, it comes down to money. And I, and I asked Democrats in Wyoming about Charlie. And I said, do you think Charlie is a viable candidate? And they would say, these are people in the Democratic Party hierarchy in Wyoming. They'd say, no, no. And why? Uh, they didn't take him seriously. Why? Uh, it was, didn't have to do with what he was saying or the, or the fact that he had no political experience. It had to do with the fact that he didn't have any money. They said that they would tell me that the starting point for being taken seriously is having money. And that's the starting point for being taken seriously by the party and getting support from the party. But also, it's the starting point for getting media coverage and getting in the news and people actually reporting on you. Charlie got almost no media coverage in Wyoming. The media coverage he did get was surprisingly quite favorable. But most media organizations, they just do your standard, you know, okay, it's an election, we gotta do an interview with Charlie Hardy, we'll do an interview with Mike Enzi, and we fulfilled our responsibility, and that's it. And Charlie could talk every single day and stand in the street corner and talk about all sorts of interesting things. And he's never going to, there'll never be another story about Charlie unless he suddenly had a lot of money, started putting in a lot of advertising, and then they might pay attention. And to unless somehow you become the story, right? Because I noticed that with Trump during the campaign. He got more airtime than anyone I've ever seen when he wasn't doing anything. It would just be a typical stump speech, and yet you'd be in the airport or somewhere, and there he was on every TV, on every station. And they, I think the media pretty much help, you know, helped him get elected. And, and yet some good things happened, too, in that regard. Uh, 
the, um, for example, the Casper Star Tribune is one of the major newspapers in the state. And uh, a reporter did come and ride on the bus with us for a day, and a photographer, and so on. And uh, she won uh, an award from the Wyoming Press Association, the best news story of the year. It made the front page and full page, and so, so what there was, was coverage. Charlie, what was the campaign like for you? Well, as far as uh, you know, the problem being the two-party system, um, I'm not going to go that far, but I am going to say there does have to be a shakeup with what the priorities are. Uh, I never felt great support from the Democratic Party. Uh, you can laugh about things uh, in in the movie. Uh, we're we're in. Jackson, Wyoming, uh, you know, this is a wealthy, wealthy part of the, the country. And, and there is a fundraiser, $1,500 a meal to go to this. Only 50 people are going to get to go for it. For a candidate for the United States Senate from Colorado, not from Wyoming, okay? I wasn't, uh, they were going to let me come to the table if they didn't sell all their 50 tickets. So there was $75,000 being raised just at that meal, and none of it would go to help someone in Wyoming. And with that, we could have done incredible things. But, uh, but I was up against the Democratic structure, too. And uh, so they were raising money for Mark Udall in Colorado. I talked to one of his representatives. They figured they'd have to raise $21 million. I think it turned out to be one of the most expensive races in the country, $100 million being spent on a, on a Senate race in Colorado, and he didn't win. Uh, but it's, it's I, again, I don't think it's just the two parties. It's what's happening within those two parties. You have a small group of people who have taken control, and uh, it's what I mentioned about the four super delegates being for Hillary Clinton, whereas the Bernie supporters, uh, when the caucuses happened, were really the driving force for a new vision in Wyoming. And it would have been interesting to see how many young people would have come out. And uh, I mean, young people did get involved. Um, so. Did you like starring in a film? Oh. Was that I, a, a pleasurable experience, one you'd like to repeat? It, it talk about that. I really believe everyone's life is like a movie. Uh, we're, we're in the Sun Valley area. When I was a young kid, there was a movie, White Christmas. Many of your listeners might not remember, there was a guy by the name of Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney, and they were on a train going to Vermont to go skiing, and they it's were singing, singing songs and so on. I thought, that's unreal. And then one day I found myself, uh, it's a skier, down Vale or someplace, and you're in a condominium, and someone's sitting by the fireplace playing guitar and so on, and you say, this is a movie. I've come to believe everyone's life is like a movie, and it's just by chance that uh, it, that Reed and I met each other, and he decides to do something crazy. Uh, it, uh, but it was an experience that I, I think more. He's just documenting you doing something crazy, but no, you know, we can debate but, about that. But you know, I, I just learned to avo- uh, to ignore him totally. I, I when it come time to go to the bathroom, I'd realize I had a microphone on and uh, so on. But one time, talking about the story in the Casper Star Review, and there was this reporter and photographer, and I go running every morning and. I knew someone was running alongside me. I had no idea who it was, uh, and uh, but paid no attention. At the end, I was looking over Boyson Lake, standing there with my arms folded. I could hear someone was behind me or whatever. And someone said, uh, what if it had been a bear? And I said, if it had been a bear, 
the bear probably would have knocked me over, jumped on me, and someone would have run up with a camera and started taking pictures. And this one photographer said, no, we're not that cruel. And the other said, yes, we are. The important thing is to get the photograph. And so basically what it was was just to go on with your life, do what you're doing. And, and that's been kind of the, I would say, the, the torture of sitting in an audience and people are looking at you, you know, putting on your socks. I don't know what. To well, and what, what's been the reception so far to the film? Oh, it, it's, it's been very, it, it's been nice. Uh, people thinking about getting, this happened, uh, there was a previous screening in New York, uh, a young person who was thinking about getting involved in politics and came and said they had decided to. The same way up in Montana, someone somewhat involved and, and found it inspiring. So my hope is, uh, you can laugh about this, someone said in Wyoming that I was the Bernie Sanders of Wyoming. I like to think that Bernie Sanders was the Charlie Hardy of the United States, uh, trying to get young people involved. And so on that note, having this experience, how do you advise people? In what way do you advise them best to get involved? How can people participate in an effective way? For young people, I would urge them, first of all, to get involved with activities within their own community. To be, uh, I, there was a, a saying by uh, Albert Schweitzer, who I think was a Protestant missionary over in Africa. He once said, I don't know what the future holds for you, but this I know that you'll find happiness to the extent that you've learned how to serve others. Uh, I used to like that a lot, but I've changed my mind. Instead of the word serve, I like the word accompany others. Uh, if you serve, it means you're either better than someone and you're doing something for the poor or whatever, or you're, you're less than someone, you're serving someone. I like the word accompany, and I guess that's what I would urge people to do, to try to accompany people who are struggling within our country, elsewhere, learn foreign language, go to other countries, but try your best to be with people, which is something that I admire about Reed Lindsay, by the way because uh, he has really made an effort to be among the people in, uh, uh, won an award for a film done over in Calcutta, in India. Uh, and it's that, so that's where I would say to get started. Okay, get down and listen to what people are saying on the grassroots level. But then, uh, you know, don't give up. Uh, try to shake things up. The, these, without throwing out the two political parties, if I were young, maybe I'd uh, get involved in a third party or something or other. And I did try to run as an independent. There's, uh, I think, a need for independence. But uh, shake things up. Uh, well, and do you feel like you've shaken things up in your hometown? Has a movie shown there? Or, uh, do people now know who Charlie Harder, Hardy is, and maybe those who didn't when you were running? Well, yes, uh, uh, the movie hasn't shown Wyoming. We, we don't know yet what's going to happen that way. The, uh, but uh, in, in October... You've got to rent a theater and just <laughs> run it. Okay. Thanks. You're like my sister that lives in Oregon, gives me advice on what I should do in Wyoming. <laughs> that, the, that'll uh, be the only piece. But uh, I, I, I went up that to... That was for Reed anyway, not you. I'm giving Reed advice. <laughs> well, he's he's in a, charge of distribution, yeah, well, I'm I guessing. Am, yeah, and it, again, the film, we just finished it. So this whole thing about distribution is, uh, it's my first time through the process. I've done many documentary films, but not a feature length, not one that I've tried to distribute myself. And it is a, a little more complicated than I anticipated. And it takes 
little time. So we're working on that now, figuring out uh, there's just a lot of logistics in it, a lot of logistics. In it. And and since it's, it's been a tremendous financial uh, burden until this point, I'd like moving forward to at least be sustainable. So we're, we're I'm trying to come up with a plan to, to do that. And so are you both happy with the finished product? Other than the oddness of watching yourself put on the socks and knowing the people next to you are watching you put on your socks. Other than that, were you, are you happy with the finished product? I'd have to say yes, not because of my opinion, but because of the opinions of people who have seen it. The, um, and uh, just one other thing in keeping things going. Back in October, went up to Standing Rock and uh, was there less than 12 hours when there was bad news and good news. The bad news was I wasn't arrested. The good news was a young man who had helped with the campaign was arrested. All he did was get up one morning, go pray with the Native Americans, walk across the field, and he's now facing $3,000 fine, 60 days in jail, because he supposedly uh, was engaging in a riot and... uh, uh, But here again, it's an example of a young person who 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 wants to stay involved. Uh, Oh Lord, they put him in a cell. Forty-eight other men and forty-seven other men, a cell for twelve people. No shoes, no socks. Uh, Most of the people had been camping. He said the odor was terrible. And by the time I found where he was by midnight that day, and that happened like seven o'clock in the morning, he was already a hundred miles away. And when I finally talked to him on the phone, he said, I have a new cause, prison reform. Uh, so that's what I'm, I'm, I'm saying to young people, you know, do things. We're in the Sun Valley area. Something that had a great impact in my life uh, when, when I was a priest, I was in Vail, Colorado, skiing with some young people. And uh, there were, what, and maybe these still exist. I haven't been there a long, long time. The back bowls, and it said expert only. And uh, we were standing in line for an hour, and then we'd ski down in 10 minutes. And the next day, this friend said, you know, I'm going to go to the other side of the mountain. And someone said, oh, no, Don, you'll kill yourself. There was an Olympic skier, Jean-Claude Keeley. He skis there. And he said, I'm going the other side. Anyone want to come along? And I said, I'll go. We went to the other side of the mountain. We didn't ski with style. But we'd get down, we'd get on a lift, go right back up. We skied all day long. And the people staying on the other side of the mountain, they stood in line all day long. And I'm saying that has been something in the back of my mind. I would just urge young people, go to the other side of the mountains, go to the other side of the world, go to the other side of your community. There's a lot of exciting things. Lord, so I walked into, uh, a little over a year ago, walked, over 300 miles over the Pyrenees and along the top of uh, Spain. And uh, someone asked me in, in Missoula, is that what, in, did that have an impact on your life or whatever? And I said, you know, I think the biggest pilgrimage I ever made was when I walked the distance about three blocks to the cardboard shack where I was going to live for eight years and uh, never met finer people but it opened a whole new new world. It, it was the same as going to the back bowls of Vale. Uh, so I would just really urge, I still teach junior high kids and high school kids, substitute teach, and we have a great time. And so my message would be for the young people, um, 
Lord, in Wyoming, you know, half of the people under 50 years of age didn't vote in the 2014 election. It's old people. Now, I don't put myself in that category, but it's old people who are voting, and we've got to get the young people out and involved and see, see, see what's happening in the world. All right, well, this is Ellie Newman. That got me thinking. I've been speaking with Charlie Hardy and Reed Lindsay, and one one question that I think we've identified it, but have we left anything out of who the Goliath is in Charlie and Goliath? Yes, and it's not Senator Enzi. It's about money in politics, uh, of which he, with all the politicians, are are kind of, uh, I'll say victims of whether how much they want to be victims of that. I'm not passing judgment, but it is part of that reality with the structure in in both parties and and maybe even some of the ones coming up the emphasis on you need money uh you you i'll go so far as to say you don't need money you have to get out and begin presenting a different vision of, of what should be happening in the world go to the other side of the mountain and persist that's nice. Ellie, you said that very, very, very nicely. All right. Well, we urge you to participate, and we urge you to participate in the Sun Valley Film Festival. They've got some incredible films, full length and short films and documentaries. And this film in particular will be uh, playing today at 5.30, tickets still available. So thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Ellie.